0: Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And ending at verse 13, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. If you're a regular with us on Sundays, you'll know that our theme for this year is Until He Comes, and we're thinking a bit about the consequences of and the importance of the second coming of our Savior. And to kind of introduce those themes to us, we've been looking at Peter's second letter. And um, tonight we come to the third chapter of that letter, okay, and we're going to look at the first half of it tonight, second half we're going to look at next Sunday, But in that last chapter of um, this second letter of Peter, there is a simple message to the Christian church and you can summarize it in just a few words. And here's what it is. Peter is saying, change is coming and some of you aren't going to like it. Now, you might say, so what's the big deal about that? You're talking to a church-based audience. We don't do change, all right? And every time there is a change, there's always definitely at least one person who doesn't like it. I was visiting a centenarian the other day, a member of our church He was 100 years old, and we took her a bunch of flowers and a card from the church and spent a bit of time with her. She's uh, 100 years of age. Her body might be a little frail, but I can tell you her mind is still as sharp and, and, and fresh as it was. And uh, so we sat having a bit of a chat together. and We were talking about things around church and about her own health and so on. And I was talking to her about the new church complex back there, which she hasn't seen But in the course of conversation, discovered that she was still able to come to church after we built this building. And she said, said, yes, I've been in the new church building. And she said, I didn't like it. (laughs) And just to show how sharp her faculties currently are, she said, and she made this sign. I don't like that. In other words, the curved pews. I like the straight ones in the old building, she said. And that's kind of the thing, isn't it? You know, change is coming And some of you aren't going to like it. Because Peter realizes that something is in the air. You must understand, he says, that in the last days, scoffers will come. The last days. Literally, the the words would be translated like this, the ends of the days. That's what Peter wrote in Greek. Or we might say, the days are drawing to a close. One commentator puts it like this. The phrase clearly indicates that Peter thought he and his audience were living in the last age of human history, the eschatological age. We live in an incredible moment of time. This is the last age of history. And that age will finally end when Jesus returns and the earth and the heavens suffer a catastrophic event. Peter says the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. This is the sum of all fears, isn't it? This is the nightmare of my generation In 1957, Neville Shute, the English novelist and aeronautical engineer, published what was perhaps his most famous novel entitled On the Beach. On the Beach is the story of the end of human existence in 1963. The story goes like this, that one year prior to the events that you read in, in Shute's novel in 1962, there was a nuclear war which took place in the Northern Hemisphere. And that nuclear war annihilated every living thing in the Northern Hemisphere. And then during the following year, 1963, a cloud of poisonous radiation is brought by the trade winds from the north to the south. So that by the time Shute writes his novel, the only place left on earth where human beings are alive is the southern tip of Australia. And the novel talks about the lives of a number of individuals and what their last days look like, the last members of the human race to perish. That's what the novel is about. It's obviously a bundle of laughs. And one critic talking about this novel of Neville Schutz said this, most novels of apocalypse posit at least a group of survivors and the semblance of hope. On the beach allows nothing of the kind. And isn't that sort of what Peter is saying here too? How else would you understand his words? The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. It's the end of life as we know it. However, it's not what you might think. Because in Peter's version of that scenario, there is a but. He says, that day will bring about the, destructions of the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. What Peter is talking about here is not the poisonous fire of a nuclear holocaust, but the fire which strips creation bare for the Lord to remake it, right? One day, that's what we believe. There will be a new heaven and a new earth only this time. It will contain everything that is beautiful and glorious and amazing and wonderful about the world as we know it right now. But the pain will be gone and the disease will be gone and the death will be gone and the sin will be gone and the hostility will be gone. God's gonna make it again. And this time, he's gonna make it right. Which all sounds great. But there's an obvious question why hasn't it happened? These words were written 2,000 years ago. Seems like an inordinately long amount of time to us. Two millennia have passed. Jesus hasn't returned. This hope that he and the apostles gave to first century Christians has not been realized. Why not? Seems a perfectly reasonable question, and it's been around for a very long time. Paul deals with this question in his first letter to the Thessalonians. That's really significant because the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians we think is probably the first New Testament book to be written. The New Testament was not written in the chronological order in which you see the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and so on. The first book of the New Testament to be penned is almost certainly Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And in the very first book of the New Testament, Paul's trying to answer the question, why has Jesus not come back yet? And here we have Peter dealing with it in the second book, which goes by his name. So what does Peter say about that really important question? Well, the first thing Peter says is this. First of all, he says God is not dragging his feet. He's just working on a different clock. Peter says, do not forget one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Peter's first point is the Lord actually is not being slow. What you don't understand is that time looks different to God than it looks to us. To God, time is a dynamic thing, an elastic thing, something that he can stretch out longer or compact shorter to suit his purposes and what he is seeking to achieve in the world. To him, it's not fixed. It's an elastic thing. To us, of course, it's totally different. To us, it is a fixed thing. Second hand of your watch is ticking away while you sit there. Your calendar marks the passage of days. Every year you celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and special days. And even in church, we have things like Christmas and Easter. and We mark the passing of time and time is a rigid, fixed quantity. And that's what it is. And we measure it carefully and we notice its passing and we know when it has gone. To God, time is not like that. It's a dynamic thing that he can adjust and use according to his purposes. But even if to God it were not a dynamic thing, even if to God it were, like it is to us, a fixed thing, well then, even judged by the experience of that, God is not being slow. Science tells us that that human history has lasted on this planet for roughly 200,000 years. Now, if those 200,000 years were a day, the 2,000 years of Christian history would be the last 15 minutes. And if God is working on a timetable that has been stretching out over 200,000 years of a race that he brought to the birth, that he then redeemed and that he has been working with over all that time to bring into his kingdom, what's the last 15 minutes of a 24-hour day? God is not slow. Or let's move the focus out a bit further, supposing we take not the history of the human race, but suppose we take the whole of creation, the universe itself. Science tells us that the universe itself is somewhere close to 14 billion years old. I don't know if it is or not. How would I know whether it is or not? But let's just say for the sake of argument for the moment that we accept what science has to say, and that the universe in which we live is 14 billion years old. If those 14 billion years were a day, the 2,000 years of Christian history are the last 100th of a second. God is not slow. A God who works on a canvas that size who works out his purposes in ways that are almost beyond our ability to imagine, is not slow to take 2,000 years to do something that he has promised to do. God is not slow, Peter says. He's not dragging his feet. But Peter also says that God is not dragging his feet, nor, on the other hand, is he rushing into anything. Peter says, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I know often when we see these words, we think that Peter is applying them to the whole of the human race, to those who currently are not within the church. But actually, Peter refers the you in the sentence as the Christian fellowship to which he writes these words. And it turns out, therefore, that it's not God that's holding things up. We are the people holding everything up just as we could be the people who could speed everything up. Peter says later on in this this chapter, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Peter is saying that what is holding this up is that God is waiting, being patient, creating space so that the people who claim to know him and who claim to love him could get their act in order. And begin to live like people who really have put Jesus in the first place. He's giving us time. And and Peter makes a prophecy about what will happen in that time. Above all, he says in verse 3: you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Now, what you have to realize here is that Peter is not talking about the contemporary equivalent of Ricky Gervais. Or some other smart aleck comedian who is basically a committed atheist and who uses every opportunity that they have to pour scorn on and make fun of anybody who is a Christian, anybody who states or argues a Christian point of view or seeks to live in that particular way. I'm sure those people existed in Peter's day. But he's not referring to them. Peter is talking here about people inside the church People who claim to believe in the Lord Jesus, but who call into question the fact that God intervenes in history at all. They say nothing has changed in the beginning. Look at the world. There is a consistent series of events in each generation, and nothing has really changed. God doesn't get involved in that way, they say and the power in what they do is not found in their arguments. They're not really that smart. The power of what they do is found in their laughter. Nothing changes our behavior like when someone makes fun of us. My younger daughter, Hannah was getting the bus into town one day to work, and uh, she got on the bus, and and she had on that day a coat, which. They were popular a a while back and and they, they had like a metallic finish to them. Hers was a silvery kind of finish. She got on the bus with the coat on, sat down and after her, a young fella also got on the bus and sat down in the seat beside her. It turned out the young guy suffered from Tourette's and so the whole way into town, he was clicking and making noises and calling out about things that the bus was passing and whatever else happened to come into his mind at a given moment. Hannah was doing her best to ignore him completely had her earphones in pretending she wasn't hearing but then she became aware quite a lot of people on the bus were laughing and and so she she wondered what they were laughing at and she took one of the earphones out of her ear and the young man who was sitting beside her in the seat okay was ticking and clicking and making various noises and in between times shouting out tin man tin man tin man I think you can make the connection fairly obviously, okay, exactly what he was doing and and so on. And she then realized why everybody else was laughing because they had made the connection too. And I can tell you that since that day, Hannah rarely now wears the coat. Because nothing changes our behavior like when people make fun of us. And that is the power of these people. You see, Any argument they might make is easily refuted. There is no power in their argument because as we have already seen, judged by any standard, God is not slow to act. But as well as that, God has already in fact acted. He has already intervened in history. Peter quotes the flood, an act of judgment in the Old Testament whereby God reset the clock. He started things again swept the earth clean, and he gave to the human race a new opportunity. He has already intervened and done something dramatic. So what's the problem with him doing it again? Only this time he will do it by different means. When I was a young Christian, there was a guy called Andre Crouch, who was a quite well-known American singer and worship leader, and he issued, a, I actually have some of his LPs, and I'm talking seriously vinyl here, not your rubbish LCDs or downloaded music or anything like that. The real McCoy, okay? One of the songs that he sang was called It's Gonna Rain. And in it, there were these memorable lines that keep being repeated in the song. God says, no more water, fire next time. And that's what Peter's saying. God's already done it with water. He's gonna do it with fire the next time because he's already done it, demonstrates that he can do it again. These people's argument doesn't hold up. And anyway, the whole point about the return of the Lord is, by the very nature of what it means, it never seems likely until it happens. Right up to the moment before Jesus comes back, there seems to be no sign that he's coming. Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a theme. One commentator puts it like this, the day of the Lord will break in like the burglar. You don't know when the burglar comes to your premises. And the moment before he breaks in, there is nothing to indicate that he might. It just happens. And that commentator goes on to say, the second coming will burst in upon humankind suddenly, and it will not be a quiet affair. Christine and I were babysitting for Matt and Laura last night, and Jude has a new game. It's called Pop-Up Parrot. I don't know if you're aware of this game, but how Pop-Up Pirate works is this, okay? So you have a plastic pirate, okay? And you uh, push him down into a plastic barrel. And, And then you have a number of colored swords. Four players can take part in this game. And so you can have yellow or red or green or blue. And then what you do is you push the swords into little slots in the barrel. And at some point, when one of the swords goes in, some mechanism is triggered in the game and the parrot pops up. Okay, of course, Jude is lying around the floor laughing at this. He thinks it's great fun. It absolutely scared the living daylights out of me several times because I didn't know it was going to happen until it happened. And sometimes you only got two swords in and he popped up and then the next time you get 15 in and there was no sign of him popping up at all. And before he did pop up, there was nothing. There was one time he moved a little bit and I looked at Christine and thought the next one's going to do it, but it didn't. And until he popped up, you didn't know it was going to happen. The return of Jesus' is pop-up part. The second before the skies break and the clouds open and the Savior appears, there will be nothing to indicate that this is about to be the case. Peter says, there is no part of the argument of the scoffer. This is the way that it is. So if that is the case, why does he bother to talk about it? I mean, what is the point in talking about something that you cannot predict when it is going to happen? You won't even know it's going to happen a millisecond before it does. Because, Peter says, as we realize the nature of the second coming of Christ, it should do two things. The first thing is, it should create expectancy. Peter says, in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. See, we are aware of the fact that everything we do as believers right now to try to put right, you thought I was going to (laughs) sneeze. See, see, I did this morning and nearly deafened everybody. You thought I was going to sneeze, but I wasn't. (laughs) See, we know that everything we do right now to try to put right what is wrong in our world, the mission that we feel called to be on because of our Savior and what His Holy Spirit has done in our lives. We realize that everything we do to put things right in the world now is only a temporary solution until the real fix comes along. I had a road traffic accident a number of years ago. I was taken to the city hospital in Belfast and they wheeled me into a cubicle in A&E downstairs uh, to wait till they could find a doctor who would come and look at me and decide what they needed to do. I realized they probably needed to do something reasonably significant, seeing as both my knees were the size of a football. So about four and a half hours later, really late at night by this stage, in comes a young doctor, okay? So he's in a dress suit shirt and tabby bow tie I don't know what function they dragged him out of but obviously I'm sure he was blessing me to have to come to hospital ward late at night from whatever it was that he was enjoying and he came into the cubicle and he had my x-rays in his hand holding them up to the light to look at them and then he looked at me and he said I'm going to put you in plaster and the boss can decide what he wants to do with you in the morning Now, to be fair to the young doctor, he attended to my wounds. He stabilized me. He put both my legs in plaster. The heat of the plaster initially was glorious when when, when it went on and, and, and so on and so forth. But actually, he didn't fix anything. He just dressed my wounds and made me comfortable. And then the next morning when the boss came in, he did make a decision and off I went to theater to get what needed to be done, done. And that's the way it is for us. Of course, we are going to work with all our enthusiasm and all our resources and all our energy to see what we can do to to bring about the influence of the kingdom of God in the culture and in the age in which we live. We're going to do everything that we can to do that, but we understand that we are putting plaster on the broken legs of humanity and we need a surgeon who can actually fix it. And that is gonna happen when Jesus returns. He is the specialist who is coming to sort out the mess. One commentator says, "'After lengthy arguments with the heretics "'and vivid warnings of the fire next time, "'the writer turns in pastoral care "'towards those still clutching the promise "'of something better and asks that they match God's patience with their own. Wait, he says, there will be a new time and place where righteousness is at home. One day, one day, we believe that what we cannot do, we will do all that we can. We will strive to bind up the wounds. We will sit with the broken. We will encourage those who are unsure and uncertain. We will seek to provide friendship for the lonely and love for the lost. And we will do all these things, but we know that we cannot actually fix what is wrong with them. Only one person can do that. And he's coming back to do it at the end of time. There will be a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus comes, the end of disease, the end of suffering, the end of persecution, the end of abuse the end of uncertainty and darkness and apprehension and night. No more dying, no more pain because when he comes, there will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is at home, where everything will be the way it should be. Peter tells us about this to create an expectancy. So we understand we are not Messiahs. We're people dressing wounds and helping helping to try to stabilise the damage that sin has done in our lives and in the lives of others. But one day there comes a surgeon who will put it right. And we are expecting that day. He creates expectancy, but he also seeks to create devotion. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, Peter says, What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. I love this verse because see what Peter is doing here. Peter is not saying to us that we should live different lives because we should be afraid of what Jesus is going to do when he comes. We are not afraid of that day. Because of the cross, we're We are not afraid of that day. We are not afraid to look in our Savior's face. We are not afraid to welcome the coming King. We're not going to do what we're going to do out of fear. We're going to do what we're going to do out of devotion and love. That's what Peter says here. Since everything will be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives because Jesus is coming back. But because that is so, we ought to be careful whose company we keep. The psalmist said, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, nor stand in the way that sinners take, nor sit in the company of scoffers. Peter's calling devotion out of our hearts. And therefore calling us away from those who would rob us of that devotion, who would undermine our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus by the way that they live and the things that they say. You know, I have noticed over the years that I've served in the church how people's behavior at meetings often changes depending on who they sit beside. And when they sit beside certain people, their attitudes are completely different. The way they behave, the things they say change utterly. I notice the same at worship. It often depends where people sit as to how they actually behave. Why is that? It's because if you sit beside a scoffer, what does a scoffer do? Scoffer is the person who tells you little jokes about the person at the front, makes you laugh. And begin to question the validity of some of the things that we're talking about. You know, do you really think that that's a miracle? Do you not think really that there's some other explanation for that? And a person who by their laughter begins to strip away and undermine till you come to the point where you're no longer living that life of devotion to God, where you no longer expect miracle and you no longer expect grace and you no longer expect the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to show up to do significant things in people's lives because you're keeping the wrong kind of company. Peter said the presence of scoffers in the church is a sign that we live in the last age of human history and so Peter says I have written these letters to you to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Peter says I need you to wise up that's what he's saying I need you to wise up I need you not to keep the kind of company which by laughter and jokes would seem like really funny at the time Undermine your faith. Undermine your devotion. Undermine who you really are in Jesus Christ and slow down the course of history while God extends that elastic time to give you an opportunity to wise up. Find people whose devotion to the Lord can encourage your own and walk with those people, and sit beside those people, and cultivate their friendship in your lives, so that they can build you up, and encourage you to be devoted to this Lord, so that you believe in miracle, and you believe in wonder, and you believe in grace, and you believe in the power of the Spirit, to be able to do all the things that God says he can do, and speed up the time till Jesus comes. I remember when I was minister in Seaview being asked to speak at a meeting one evening. It was of a group that existed inside Presbyterianism at one stage. My dad was involved with it in years gone by. And uh, they were kind of like a pressure group within the church. And they were coming to meet in my church halls. And so they'd asked me to speak that night. And they'd asked me to talk about a pamphlet which had been issued just a few months before this, a group of People in the Catholic Church had had got together and had written this pamphlet to talk about what God had been doing in their lives, the faith that they would come to, and what they now understood about that faith and how they wanted to promote it. And uh, so I was asked to do a critique of the pamphlet. And believe me, I could have critiqued the pamphlet, all right? I could have found loads of things in terms of biblical interpretation, the understanding of the history of the church, the whole kind of theology of the thing. I could have found loads of ways where I could have been a scoffer at the evening. I I could have poured scorn on it and created fun around it and everybody would have applauded me. But here was my problem as I read the leaflet. I found that here were people who loved the same Savior I loved, whose lives were filled with the same grace that I had experienced who had only one desire, which was to let the world know that Jesus was everything he said he was. And yeah, sure, there were things about it that probably could have been written better or said more properly or whatever. But I couldn't get up in front of that meeting and be a scoffer. So at the meeting, I told people what they hadn't come to hear and they weren't terribly well pleased. But hey, I had to say what I had found. I found a group of people who loved the Savior like I did. And who in the midst of all their struggles and misunderstandings and all the rest of it, you know, who didn't have my advantages growing up and all the rest of it, yet had found Jesus and had found excitement and joy in following him. And if you like, metaphorically, I changed my seat. I stopped sitting with the people I had been sitting with and I went and sat with some others. And I believe in this day and age, the Lord is calling us to do the same. Why does Peter talk about the last days, the coming again of our Savior? He talks about these things so that you should understand that God is not slow. He's not dragging his feet. But he also says these things so that you might be encouraged in your faith so that your devotion might rise and your expectancy might become stronger. And so you might begin to live as people who know that Jesus is coming back. And that changes everything. It's time to move your seat. To sit somewhere else in worship or to sit somewhere else at that meeting and to make sure that you yourself are a person, wherever you sit, who brings encouragement and faith and devotion to the people beside you.